preached a series on the church. I think it was a critical series for our church. And I want to encourage each one of you, if for some reason you had not listened to the whole series, to be able to get that online. I think it will be able to encourage your heart and it will give you a correct snapshot of what God's purpose is, not only for the church, but for us. You know what? This is a holiday weekend. And next week, we actually begin our series on the book of the Gospel of John. So this is an in-between time. And what it is, it's a message that I prepared, actually. Um, it was going to be part of last week's message. And if you were with us last week, you go, oh, Rick, that, that, that would have been really long. It, it would have been. So we cut that out and made it a standalone, and uh, I just trust your heart will be encouraged, right? Cindy, can you go upstairs? I thank you. I'm sorry. I'm going to pray. All right. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for all that you have done for us. I pray, dear God, that you would help each one of us hear your word today that it would be so unbelievably powerful that each one of us would be able to walk out of here soaring. Soaring because we heard your word. Soaring because we spent some time with you. And soaring because we met with God's people. I pray today, Father, that as we dig back in the Older Testament, that, that the history wouldn't just be some boring history book. But it would be something, Father, that each one of us would be able to relate to. We pray it would just change our lives. Because that's what your word does. It changes our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You know, before we dig in, I just need to be able to give you the context. All right? The Hebrews have a long history. It's a saga of a loving, faithful God and an unfaithful, ungrateful people. All the way from the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, He put them in a perfect environment. And He said, I want you to enjoy life abundantly. But you can't eat from one tree. If you eat from one tree all things go south. Well, as you know, they went south. And from that time on, we started struggling, really, in obeying God. We really did. Now, what happens is that all the way through time, um, the history of Israel really kind of represents a little bit of us. You know, we are called sheep. And you know what's interesting about sheep? Sheep love to wander, period. Now, that's not the most attractive thing to be called. I get it. But it is reality. And sheep love just to wander. They love to go different places. And that, and that really is what Israel was famous for, wandering. They would listen to God as a nation for a little bit, then they would wander. Then they would be punished. Then they would come back and enjoy the rich relationship with God. And then they would wander. Well, let me give you a little bit of a prayer 
the Levites, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, prayed this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen because I'm just going to take a whole chapter and read different verses. But you can mark this down and you can open up your Bibles or your flat screens in Nehemiah 9. We're going to spend a lot of time in Nehemiah. But just so you know, starting at verse 5 starts this prayer. And this is what the Levite leaders were praying. And you'll get the idea of how wonderful and gracious our God is. May your glorious name be praised. May it be praised above all. Blessing and praise. You alone are God. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. And you have done what you've promised. You're always true to your word. This is a prayer. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and decrees. You instructed them concerning the Holy Sabbath. You gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock. Yet our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles that you had done for them. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. But in your great mercy, you sent your good spirit and you sustained them and they lacked nothing. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and enjoyed fertile lands. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law and killed your prophets. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. But as soon as they were at peace... Your people again committed evil in your sight, and once more you let the enemies conquer them. You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people will find life if they would obey. You sent your spirit and warned them through prophets, but they wouldn't listen. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. That's only part of the prayer. And I encourage you to pick that up sometime and, and read through it. But what's so amazing is, is God's grace and mercy is shouting over and over and over a people well, decided to disobey. Not live underneath the rule and the reign of the Almighty God. They went their own way. They did their own things. And yet God still loved them and pursued them and ran after them and warned them and warned them and warned them. Sometimes they didn't listen. Most times they didn't listen. And that's so much of the story of the Old Testament. 
You know, this ugly soap opera is recorded for us in the Old Testament, but let's look at some specifics. And I have a, um, uh, something up on the screen that just is, is something to put things in perspective for each one of us. But if we start at about 1100 B.C., and, I, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in history, but there are a few dates, um, especially if you're newer to this whole journey of following God, that are pretty important. The kings, or the period of the kings, start about 1100 B.C. Saul was our first king. David was the king after God's own heart. And Solomon was David's son. The kingdom, though, there were 12 tribes split after King Solomon. Judah and Benjamin are the southern tribes, and actually they were a little bit more godly. The 10 northern tribes were those a little bit more, or a whole lot more, rebellious. The Assyrians came in about 712 B.C., and literally wiped out the ten northern tribes. They're called the ten lost tribes. And that's a significant date in the Old Testament. Because you'll see certain prophets have prophesied mostly to the northern ten tribes. And if you put that into history, you'll understand that finally God says, I'm done. You guys are not listening. I have warned you and warned you and warned you. You're gone. That's the Assyrians. Well, a little bit later, the more godly but not so godly tribes of Judah and Benjamin, well, they continued to disobey God also. And as a result, the Babylonians who were in power at this time, you've heard the king uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar, you've often read the stories, I'm pretty sure, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, about 605 B.C., the first deportation happened. About 597, a second deportation happened, where they started to pull all the Israelites, the people who were left, back to Babylon, taking all the best and the brightest first. Well, Israel still didn't listen to God didn't understand that God meant business. And about 586, Nebuchadnezzar and his troops came in, the Babylonians, and destroyed Jerusalem. Whoa. This started an extremely dark time in the Jewish history or in the, in, in, in the, in the history of Israel. Well, after decades of captivity... 70 years to be exact, the Jews started trickling back to Jerusalem. Now there's another chart up there, and it'll put a little bit in perspective, because you've got the book of Ezra, you've got the book of Esther, and then Ezra finishes up, and then the book of Nehemiah eventually comes. Almost the last book in the Old Testament written. We know at least Malachi was written afterwards, all right? So this, is, this has been a long history, a long history. And what happened? The Persians were now in power. There's a guy named King Cyrus, and then Artaxerxes. There's a man we're going to talk a lot about who is Ezra, and he was a scribe. And he was very instrumental in rebuilding the temple. 
and setting the temple up. Because remember, the temple was destroyed in 586. Well, that helped a little bit in the Jewish history. But the truth was, is that the city of Jerusalem was in a shambles. And back then, one of the critical things that happened in any kind of a culture is that they needed a wall. They needed some kind of protection. And there wasn't a wall around Jerusalem, at least at this time. Nehemiah, who is a main character of our story today, is a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And we're almost done with history, I promise. But, but what happens at this moment? And again, what's the big deal of a cupbearer? I don't know how to say this other than he probably was the second most important person in the kingdom. All right? Very influential. Back then, one of the ways that kings were killed is they were poisoned. Literally. And Nehemiah's job, who was the most trusted of all, would literally taste his food and drink his wine. And if Nehemiah didn't die, I just like that job. <laughs> uh, Artaxerxes drank and ate. So he was pretty. So, so if Nehemiah wanted to kill Artaxerxes, he could. That was an easy thing because he was the last line before all this happened. So Nehemiah was pretty trusted. Nehemiah spent a lot of time with King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was a God-fearer. And so about 445 B.C., the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of God's gracious hand in their lives. All this to say is that centuries and centuries of rebellion have happened. But right now, in this part, God is smiling. People are becoming a little bit more responsive. And Jerusalem is starting slowly but surely to build. Well, one day in the very first part, and I'm going to go quickly over Nehemiah chapter 1 through 7, very worthy again to be read. Unbelievable bit of history. All right? But we find out that Nehemiah gets some news from fellow Jews. He said, actually, the walls are torn down. It's really hard to live here. There's been a couple deportations of Israelites that have gone back at this moment. But it's not a good place to live. And what the scriptures tell us in the first chapter is that Nehemiah mourned, fasted, and prayed. Now, to us... Um, Houston's been a disaster. Hard to even imagine some of the things that have gone on there. Now, I don't know if you have relatives. I don't know if you have kin there or, or friends there. And we have done different things from afar. And, and we are even at this process being able to um, announce an offering for the scenario down there. We're going to be giving to Samaritan's Purse. But what we do is we look at that, and I don't know, to put it in perspective, if any of you have mourned over this, have fasted over this, have prayed to God, been just so affected. And I'm not saying you have, but it's, it's kind of that. There is a disaster in Jerusalem, and the reason that 
Nehemiah got so upset is this is supposed to be the lighthouse of the Israel faith. This is supposed to proclaim to everybody how powerful and wonderful and glorious God is. And this place is a pits. It's the pits. And so Nehemiah, this powerful man, he just moans and he prays to God and he says, God, there's got to be something we can do. And over the next few weeks, God says, yes, there's something we can do, you can do it. And you know what's kind of funny is in chapter 2, the scriptures say this, is that Nehemiah was in the presence of King Artaxerxes and for the very first time, and I don't know how long that was, it was more than one day, Nehemiah was sad or depressed. Wow. Wow. And King Artaxerxes, along with his queen wife, looked at him and said, Nehemiah, what's going on? What is happening? And he took courage, and the scriptures literally say he prayed. He shot up a, a, a shotgun prayer to God. It says, oh God, help me, help me, help me, help me. I'm going to answer. Well, my beloved city of Jerusalem is just in a shambles. And I'd like to go and rebuild it. Would I have your blessing? And I guess they talk it over, and King Artaxerxes and, and, his, and his wife, yeah, well, you know what? You go. That sound, it looks like you're really busted up over this whole thing, and I don't really get it all, but go ahead and go. Nehemiah doesn't stop. It says over and over that God's gracious hand was upon him. And you know what he said? Hey, by the way, King Artaxerxes, not only do I want permission to go, but hey, can you write letters for me? And can you supply all the needs that we have? And can you make sure I get safe passage? And you're going like, Nehemiah, are you like, do you have a bolt loose? Like you just got permission. Why don't you just go before he changes his mind? But you know what's so cool is God is not restrained, even with pagan kings. Even with kings that don't even know God at all, God can move mountains. And that's what he did. And so this is the story of Nehemiah. And as you read again through those first six, maybe seven chapters of Nehemiah, you're going to see that everybody in the city the professionals and the blue collars and the nobodies. They all got together, they took a section of the wall, and they started building it up. They learned from each other. It was neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood came and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build this section of the wall, and we're going to connect it eventually. It is so cool. The religious, the professional the neighborhood people came together and just built. It's kind of like as you walked in the lobby. So much fun. Hey, you get this section. Can you trim this out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know you guys are excited. Yeah, we can do this. And you go to the next section. You go to the next section. And then all of a sudden people walk in. Their jaws drop. Say, this is beautiful. God's people just kind of came together with a paintbrush and did this. It's so little compared to what Nehemiah did. But the scripture said everything came together about halfway through. There was so much opposition. There were people that didn't want this to happen. And so as a result, this is what God did. 
okay? Um, he said, Nehemiah, you're going to have to wear weapons and keep building. And it was so cool. At the end of 52 days, there wasn't a person around that jaw didn't drop. It was impossible for this to happen. But a bunch of normal people with some extraordinary God completed the wall in 52 days. It's an amazing story, and I really think something great to study. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 9. And what happened literally six days after the wall was completed, something historic happened. And we're going to read about it. In fact, what I'd like you to do is this is kind of what happened back then. And I know you're all really comfortable, but if you're able, would you stand with me? And we're going to read together Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. The scripture will be on the screen and uh, what I did, though, if you really look at the Bible, I did take out some names. There's some winners in there, all right? Um, but, but I just thought, again, it would be less painful if, if we did this. But here where we go. Nehemiah 8, 2 to 4. We're going to start together. Read with me. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest bought the book of the law before the assembly which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for this occasion. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they had heard God's words and understood them. You may be seated. Ezra brings out the Torah. Now, it may just be the book of Deuteronomy, but Technically, the law, the Torah, was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
uh, numbers and Deuteronomy. All right, it was all of the first five books of the Bible. But what was so cool is that everybody who was there after the wall was done, the people, young and old, stood from early morning to noon. Now, granted, there was no internet, there weren't a lot of written parchments around. And so this reading of the word or hearing the word was so new. It was so fresh. They had been in captivity and they finally heard the richness of God's word. Now, if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's some hard books in there. All right? Um, There's some rich material in there too. But the people ate it up. After they heard the word, they praised God. Then the Levites kick it into gear. Now, the Levites were from the tribe of Levi. They weren't necessarily priests, but back then they were temple servants. How about that? They began to read the text again and explain it. So Ezra was up there teaching, and people were hearing God's word. Then they kind of broke up in in small groups, missional communities, uh, or whatever you'd like to call it there, all right? And the Levites began to teach and help them understand it, and the people began, began to weep. Well, Nehemiah stops the weeping. He basically says... Wow, that, it's weird though, huh? I, I mean, if someone's hearing God's word and you're like, you would think that's a good thing. But he's going to say, wait a minute. This is a time of great joy. We're so glad that you're responsive, okay? But it's time to celebrate because you have heard God's word and you understand it. If you mark your Bibles, you highlight your flat screens, that's worthy to be highlighted. Circle it. Finally, we finally understand what God's Word is. And I'll tell you, if you hang around me much, I will do everything for anybody that I hang with to understand God's Word. I remember as a youth pastor once, I uh, got my son a graphic, um, um, I call it a comic Bible, comic strip Bible. It's the wrong thing to call it. I know that. But you know what I loved? I loved my son reading the Bible. Say, Rick, are you serious? You got to like resort to cartoons in order to... Well, he was pretty young. You know, wasn't 35 when I gave him this book. I, I just want you to know. But I wanted him to fall in love with my God. And I would do anything for you to do the same thing. And so what happens on October 9th, all right, look at Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at verse 13. On October 9th, the family leaders of all the people together with the priests and the Levites met with Ezra, the scribe, to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout all of their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills, get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival 
as prescribed in the law. So the people went out and cut the branches and used them to build the shelters on the roofs of their houses in their courtyards and in their courtyards of God's people or in the squares just inside the water gate and at the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival. And they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Ezra read... From the book of the law of God, each day on the seven days of the festival. Then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, which was required by law. Ezra met with the Levites and the family leaders and taught them in greater detail. Now remember what happened is Ezra started teaching. And the Levites got around and started teaching some smaller groups. And the very next day, he says, hey, we're going to keep this going. So the Levites got around and started to get, or Ezra with the Levites and all the family heads now. And they're all huddling together, looking at God's word and saying, hey, what does God's word have to say? What do we need to obey? What is going on? And as they studied, they found out they weren't obedient there were literally seven types of Jewish festivals or feasts that are outlined in the Bible. All of them really in Leviticus 23. You can mark that down and check it out. But these Jewish festivals or feasts literally were called appointed times. They were time for people of Israel to stop, to reflect, to remember all that God has done. These days were appointed and ordained by God to keep the honor of his name. It's this very reason today we're going to have communion so that we can stop and reflect and remember all that God has done for us. Well, the Jews had seven times to do this during the year, and they hadn't been doing it. He said, oh, we have to do it. And each of those seven days, Ezra kept reading the scriptures and reading the scriptures and reading the scriptures. Then on October 31st, they went trick-or-treating. No, on, on October 31st, November, uh, November, oh my, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Let me read. On October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all the foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of their God was read aloud to them. Then... For three more hours. When I read this, I get chills. They confessed their sins and worshipped their God. Wow. The people assembled again. They fasted. They confessed their sins, even the sins of their forefathers. They stood for three hours eating up God's word. They worshipped. Then the Levites 
told them to stand up and praise the Lord your God. And then they prayed the prayer the Levites did, the Levite leaders that I started off with. Going over all the history and how faithful God is, how faithful God is, how unfaithful we are, but how loving and merciful and gracious our God is. It just pours out. I get a pause. I have to pause. How does this text hit you? When was the last time God's word was read? That you read it? That you heard it? That there was such excitement to obey it in spite of how uncomfortable it might make you? When was the last time that there were even tears of God's amazing mercy or maybe of your rebellion? When was it the last time that God overwhelmed you when you picked up his life-giving words? Folks, we're casual. We are. We have so much. You have 19 and a half Bibles in your house. You can get it anywhere. Podcast galore. We can get God's word all the time. And most of the time, we read it. That's kind of cool. God, thanks. Amen. See you later. Let's go. You know what? Let's worship. The word of God has been opened. We have been praying. There is joy. Would you stand with me as we begin to worship? Father, again, we can't make this happen. We can't make any of us adore you. But God, as we see how unfaithful we have been, how often we have run, whatever we have done, but you pursue us, you love us. You want us to confess our sin. You want us to be intimate. You desire deeply, God, that we would have an unbelievable relationship, that we might enjoy abundant living right now, God. And we pray that you would receive our praise and our worship. Amen. You know, we find in Nehemiah 13 that Nehemiah was governor for 12 years before turning or returning back to his cup-bearer position with King Artaxerxes. So there he stayed while the Israelites and the Jews were moving forward. The temple was functioning, the walls were up, and God was doing something pretty amazing. Then Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem about eight years later. Now let me remind you, we just read what had happened. Unbelievable response and joy because God's word was read and understood. And the people relentlessly obeyed. When God said it, they did it. 
There was great joy. There was great happiness. So, so Nehemiah is a good leader, feels, okay, I can go back. Things are going well here, and he does. Eight years later. You know, sometimes we think that things fall apart in a generation, or two generations, or ten. But this took eight years. It's a sad story of really what happens in eight years. And you can read through Nehemiah 13, but I'm going to share with you just a little really what happened. Nehemiah comes back and finds Tobiah living in a temple room. Might not mean much to you, but the temple room was a place where at least this temple room held the tithes and the offerings. And so now they needed no storage. There weren't tithes and offerings coming in. And so they had a vacant room. But not only that, this man, Tobiah, if you read the first few chapters of um, Nehemiah, he was an Ammonite. And the scriptures, basically, they had just got through reading how Moabites and Ammonites were repulsive to God. And they would have no part of worship of him. Now again, there's reasons for this, and, and it sounds so harsh, but... But they understood it. So not only were there no tithes or offerings coming in eight years later, but they decide to invite an Ammonite official to come and live in the temple. See, Rick, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, it, it, it was a slap to God's face. Then Nehemiah finds out that the Levites were not provided for. Duh. There's nothing in the room storing the tithes and the offerings. Now you say, well, well, they give that much money. Remember back then it was also first fruits. It was also food. It was also all kinds of things that would take care of the Levites. So the Levites weren't being provided for. So they couldn't serve in the temple. So they went back out into the field. So the temple was deteriorating. Then he walked around and he saw the Jews profaning, the word profaning, the Sabbath. And again, many of us, oh, what's the big deal, Rick? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we kind of don't do that now anymore, and was that a big deal? Uh, yeah, well, I, we probably should be looking at that. I think that's something that God never repealed. But I also think this, is this was such an important heart of following God. It was so very, very important that people would stop what they're doing. They would get their souls replenished. They wouldn't be doing what they normally do for the other six days of the week. So Nehemiah saw this. There's people selling. There's people buying. And Sunday, excuse me, Saturday at that time looked exactly just like every other day. And lastly, the Jews married foreign women. Oh boy, Rick. You know, I'm, I'm looking at all four of these things. And, and again, I'm trying to understand the history here, but this isn't something that's pushing me over the edge. You know, so like, there's a really attractive girl across the border, and 
you kind of fall in love with her, and what's the big deal? Well, all the way through God's principles, all the way through the scriptures, God's principles, hey, I want you to be yoked together. I want you to be able to have the same faith. You know, every one of these abominations to God, we could have a message on. And we could talk about that on, 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 on what God's principles are for us as God's people. But what happened was eight years, folks, it took from an unbelievable, joyful congregation city, so excited to hear God's word, standing for three hours at a shot. Folks, what will you stand for for three hours? Seriously. Other back, never mind. But it was impactful. And now, ah, you know, tithes, offerings, not that big of a deal. Moabites or Ammonites. And, you know, I mean, God, you know, things have changed now. We can get a little bit of income and, and so on. That's not a big deal. And Levites, what really do they do anyway? I mean, they're living off the fat of the land. And, and let them go work for a job, you know, and, or for a living. And, and the Sabbath, you know what? I can hardly make ends meet. I, I just got to... And it goes on and on. So this is what Nehemiah does. In Nehemiah chapter 13, starting at verse 25. And this is just talking a little bit about the last part about marrying the foreign woman. But but I think you're going to get the passion here. Okay? Starting at verse 25. So I confronted them. The, the people who married the foreign women. Okay, now he talked to everybody. But listen to this. So I confronted them, and I called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Dude! <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with you? Like, this is crazy. See, you guys think the Bible isn't funny sometimes. This is good stuff. Okay? But look at I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? I demanded there was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign wives. Over 300 of them, let me remind you. Not even counting concubines. Whoa. How, verse 27, could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithful to God? It wasn't about the marriage. It was unfaithful to God. Do you see what Nehemiah was upset about? Sin is against God. That's where it always starts. Check out Psalm 51. David finally owns his sin, and the first thing out of his mouth is, I've sinned against you, God. Yes, I've hurt family. Yes, I've murdered. Yes, there's all kinds of other ramifications, but I hurt you, God. 
And in eight years, they kind of forgot. In verse 28, And one of the sons of Jodiah, son of Elishib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sinbalat the Horonet. So I banished him from my presence. You don't listen to God. You had a chance. You're even a leader. I'm banishing you from my presence. You see, leaders carry extra weight, folks, all the way through the scriptures. And you have sinned. And you have not taken my word and obeyed it. And, verse 30 and 31... So Nehemiah, eight years later, purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and to the Levites, restoring again what their jobs and ministries were, making certain, making certain everyone knew his work. In the very last line, remember this in my favor, O oh God. Wow. What lessons? What lessons? God want us to take home today. You know, first thing I, I think just jumps out, and there's two of them, is that drifting is never intentional. Drifting is never intentional. Nobody ever, ever starts off saying, you know what, I just only want to obey God for another week. They don't. Drifting is always unintentional. You never think you need the anchor. You never think you're going to be unstable. You never think that things will be different. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it just came to me. But the book of Hebrews has some amazing truth in it, but there are some really severe warnings. Remember last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, um, where, where the author is just, I won't say screaming, but pleading. And one of the first warnings that this author says to a group of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we will drift from it. I can guarantee this, folks. If you or I are not in the Word every single day, we don't open it up, we don't hear God's love letter, we don't say, God, what is it that you want me to do? We will drift. Our culture is powerful. The enemy is at work. You will drift. It will not take eight years for you to drift. Secondly, God's gracious hand is upon us. Let's let the Word of God do His work in us. The Word of God is pretty important in our community. And we have talked in all different places on, on where and how you can stay connected with our God. 
We chatted a little bit last week, again, even talking uh, what missional communities or growth groups or, or triads or quads might look. But, but the reason that you do life together or have community, and, and none of those are happening, or, or just very few are happening right now, but the reason you do that is that you don't drift. So there's some accountability so that you find out if you're in the Word every day, that you're listening. I've shared this with you often, but one of my favorite questions I'm meeting with guys in my guys' groups is what have you read today that you don't want to obey? What have you read this week that, that you say, I'm, I'm not doing that? They'll say, they'll lie to you. Yeah, they will. And I'll lie to at times. So Rick, that's not going to honor God. It's not. But it's a place where we live life together. So that in eight years, Nehemiah doesn't come walking back through these doors and say, hey, wait a minute. I left eight years ago and you guys were excited about who God was. You opened his word, you listened to it, you ruthlessly obeyed. In fact, the very first time we did this, you spent seven days together. You said, God said, do this, we're going to do this. I'm not going to work, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to spend seven days at the Festival of Shelter. That's crazy. Who would do that? Well, a group of people that love God and say, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. Let's pray. Father, we come before you mortified and yet recognize that uh, we're not too far off from every one of these folks. Your word has energized so many of us and given us life. And Lord, we play games at times and, and we sort of obey and we partly listen. And, 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 you know, on a scale, God, we, we do it more than our neighbor, maybe. Oh, God, would your word be so alive and powerful? Would it convict us? Would there be weeping? Would there be confession? Would there be great joy? Would we honor you with our lives, every aspect, every specific aspect? And God, eight years from now, would you find even a more dynamic, thriving community? Being salt and light listening to your every word, drawing people in from every neighborhood, that your kingdom would be strong and that we'd be part. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?